I want to ask, start out my actual message here by asking you, does the name Alison Arngrim ring a bell to any one of you? Anyone, does the name sound familiar? Alison Arngrim. Vaguely, okay. I, I, I didn't think it probably would, but I bet most of you are familiar with some of her work. No, but you're, you're on the right track. From 1974 to 1981, the actress Alison Arngrim played Nellie Olson on the wildly popular show Little House on the Prairie. Nellie, as everyone of a certain age will remember, some of you young kids, you're too young for that. You should really go, I don't know, maybe it's on Netflix. Anyway, you should watch Little House on the Prairie. But Nellie was a horrible, horrible child who tortured the sweet Laura Ingalls in every episode. Allison is... is uh, like my age, you know, she's since acted in several other roles, but Nellie Olson is never too far in the background. Well, Allison was at the L.A. County Fairgrounds just a few years ago, signing autographs inside a tent with other child, uh, former child stars. And in the midst of there was this long day of meeting and greeting, and a woman in her 40s made it to the front of the line, got up there, and Allison looked up and smiled at her and reached for something to sign. You know, she was signing autographs. The woman didn't have any notepad or anything or a card to give her to sign or anything like that. She just stood in front of the table, and she turned different shades of red and purple. And she was, she was shaking, she was closing her eyes, and she was swallowing, and she was just trying to compose herself and having a just difficult time of it. Well, Allison and her husband, who was there with her, they grew increasingly uncomfortable, this woman just standing there having a little uh, meltdown or something, and they were kind of about ready to call for security uh, when this angry woman broke the silence with three labored words. She said, I forgive you. <laughs> and just like that, she exhaled, she turned, and she exited the tent. Now, Allison says that this kind of thing actually happens fairly often. She had never met this woman. They had never exchanged a single word before meeting at the fair that day. But this angry stranger at the L.A. County Fair had carried a seething, consuming grudge against a character in a TV show that had not aired in 30 years. Nellie had never bullied her and never lived in her neighborhood. Nellie had never even existed. But after 30 long years of carrying the burden of this hatred, she needed to lay it down and walk away. We're finishing up the series, Jesus the Extremist, today. And I want to look at Jesus' radical teaching concerning this idea of forgiveness. Now, I, I've taught on forgiveness. Actually, I taught on this very same passage I'm going to read here in a bit, less than two years ago. But the subject of forgiveness is one that I am pretty sure that we all could stand to revisit fairly often. When Christians talk about forgiveness, we often tell stories of people forgiving the unforgivable. You've probably heard that phrase, you know, uh, maybe forgiving being physically or sexually abused when you were a child or even adult or or neglected or unloved by your parents, or, or, or maybe a loved one was killed by a drunk driver and you struggle to forgive the person that killed them, or someone being hurt by another person's carelessness or, or stupidity, you know, all that type of thing. But in everyday life, forgiveness is often more complex and less momentous than that kind of stuff. Uh, yes, you know, a, a woman with serious issues ha held a 30-year grudge against a fictional character and she had to forgive the actress that portrayed her. And, you know, we shake our heads at such a thing. and say, Well, that's just crazy. But many of us here are probably holding on to small grudges 
and remaining unforgiving about imagined slights or, or, or dirty looks or, or misunderstandings or, or even just personality differences. You like that, I like the other, and, and, and so we're just not on the same wavelength. In my experience, followers of Jesus don't struggle nearly as often with forgiving big, serious offenses as we do with forgiving the small things that we do or do not do that upset people that we're close to or that they do or don't do that upset us. Now, I, I, I was thinking when I was writing this, I don't really carry a, any deep-seated burning anger issues for any one individual as far as I know. I'm just trying to think, is there anybody that I really just am, am hating on, you know, back in, my, in the recesses of my dark mind or something like that? And I can't think of anyone. But if I'm honest with myself and with you, I'd have to admit that there are, you know, there are some, uh, maybe one or two uh, low-level sense of unforgiveness issues for a few people that I have known over the years. Jesus is, is very clear on the subject. Being unforgiving is wrong. It's wrong to not forgive the person who did something awful and terrible and unbelievable to you when he or she asked for forgiveness, but it's also wrong to not forgive people for the small things they've done that have offended you. So we're going to look at what Jesus said on the subject. It's Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 21. There it is. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 77, or 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in and who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to the fellow servant, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and he demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will repay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and they told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man who he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Now something was on Peter's mind, obviously, uh, in this passage. Just before this passage, Jesus had been telling the people about God's desire to forgive us, about to, God's desire to bring people back into the fold when they strayed. And then Jesus spent a little time talking about the best way to handle it when you feel you've been wronged by another person. You know, first he says you go and talk to him or her alone, explaining how you believe that this person has wronged you. And if he sees your point and apologizes, you both hug and you move on, you know. But Jesus then went on to explain how to handle it if, if that face-to-face -face meeting didn't resolve anything. And maybe Jesus here had brought up a subject that just hit a little too close to home for, for Peter. 
Maybe there was something that Peter had done that he wasn't proud of or, or something that had happened with someone in his past that deep down, you know, he knew he'd botched it. But he didn't want to admit it to himself. And we don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was, this was a, a particularly sensitive subject for Peter. So Peter says, well, speaking of forgiveness, forgiveness, Rabbi, how many times should a person forgive someone when he does them wrong? I'm thinking maybe up to seven times. Now, maybe Peter was fishing for a compliment here because he, he asks and he answers his own question in the same breath, you know. Likely, he thought he was forgiving seven times was being magnanimous because many of the rabbis back then taught that a person was obligated to forgive three times. You had to forgive three times, but after that, they didn't have to forgive someone. So if your neighbor, if he you know, accidentally harvested some of your wheat, he strayed when he was harvesting wheat onto your land one year, and he said, oh, you caught him, he said, hey, you're, this is my land you're harvesting. Well, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Yes, you had to forgive him. And then next year, if he did it again, you caught him, and they apologized, you had to forgive him. And the next year, the same thing. But after that, if they messed with you, it was on and you could take revenge. You didn't have to forgive. So you see, Peter takes the rabbinical teaching of, of, on forgiveness three times. He doubles it and he adds one for good measure. Plus, seven was viewed as a, a complete number to Jews of the first century. So no doubt he's quite surprised when Jesus takes his generous number uh, of seven and adds 70 to it. To forgive 77 times. How could a, a person keep track of that? Now, some translations, because it's a little bit ambiguous, say they put Jesus' number of times a person should forgive it 490, seven times 70. That's right. Yeah, yeah, math is hard for me, but that's right. But most people believe that 77 times is what Jesus actually said. But, you know, 77, 490, it doesn't really make any difference in the real world. Now, while they were standing there trying to wrap their minds around this idea of forgiving someone up to 77 times or 490 times, Jesus launches right into this story that makes his point in, a, in an even better way. And he tells about this imaginary king who is auditing his high-ranking civil servants. I figure they have to be high-ranking to be trusted with such a, a huge, uh, huge amount of money. One particular servant had mismanaged his department to the point where he was personally on the hook to, to the king for a mind-boggling amount of money. Now, the translation I read from, I think they kind of miss it. It says, uh, what does it say? It said tens of thousands of dollars or something like that. Uh, uh, what did it say? Millions, millions. I think that's uh, underestimated by a factor of 10 or 100 or something like that. In my... Uh, it, it, the, the, the text says 10,000 talents. But in my wallet here, I have... Uh, well, that's real money. I have a couple of, uh, I have a couple of Cambodian uh, bills left over from the trip this summer. Now, this is a, this is a 500. See, it says 500 right there. And this is, a, this is a 100. And there was just a little bit of change I had left over from the trip. And I just left them, left them in the, the compartment of my wallet where I put uh, funny money when I go traveling and things like that. And uh, it's... Uh, it's, uh, it's real, R-I-E-L, not dollars. Uh, they're, they're the Cambodian real is their unit of currency. And, you know, 600 real, that might sound like a, a lot of money. But 600 real is probably equal to about 15, 16 cents. Uh, and so it's, they use dollars uh, for the most part, and then the real is what they use instead of coins. Well, what can you buy for 600 Cambodian real? Even in Cambodia, the answer is almost nothing. You might get a small snack on the street or something like that. Really, the hundreds are only, only good to give away to beggars or something like that. 
But see, if you're shopping there and you're not paying in dollars and you're going to be spending what sounds like huge amounts of money, you know, 100,000 real, 20,000 real, half a million real, but in actuality, it's not much money at all when you're talking about the buying power or the time taken to earn it. Well, in Jesus' story here in Matthew 18, we've got the opposite problem. 10,000 talents doesn't sound like a whole lot. Uh, Even when some people translate it into uh, modern-day equivalent values, it comes out to something like $10 million or some such number. Now, that's a lot of money for, for all of us here, but compared to what we're, we're used to hearing when, we, when our elected officials and our civil servants discuss, you know, county, state, and national budgets, $10, 10, $10 million is chump change, you know. Uh, that, that's, uh, the, 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 they spend more than that to, to do the littlest thing in the federal government. Well, a talent was equal to something like 75 to 90 pounds of silver. And in fact, King Herod, king of Israel at the time Jesus was born, He only received 900 talents in tax receipts every year. So this amount here was something like 12 years worth of tax receipts for a small country. The point is that 10,000 talents was an incalculable amount of money. It might have been 100 or 10 10 million dollars or 10 billion dollars or 10 trillion dollars. It was more money than any person could actually repay back. Even Bill Gates couldn't pay back that kind of money. And you might have heard the old saying, if a man owes you $100,000, then he's got a problem. But if he owes you $100 million, then you've got a problem, you know. And this is the situation that the, the king was in. Uh, and this guy, this guy's summoned before the king. The king tells him he's got no choice but to, to sell him and his whole family into slavery. And this would have paid back only the smallest fraction of the man's debt, but it's what was done in such cases. You couldn't just let people be owing you money willy-nilly without there being consequences. It was like a, a bookie had to break some kneecaps on occasion to reinforce the discipline of what's going on there. So what's this guy do? He's in front of the king, he falls down, and literally he begs him not to take his wife and his children and have them sold into slavery. And he makes unrealistic promises. Well, if you just give me more time, just a little more time, then I can pay. And that'd be like one of us promising to personally pay off the national debt. It's just not going to happen. But he was desperate. So imagine what you might promise if you were on the brink of literally losing everything, including your family, everything your life consists of. Please, don't do this. I can make it right. I beg you. Any, any way possible. Well, in Jesus' story, the king took pity on this man and canceled his debt, let him go. And this is yet another unbelievable part of Jesus' story. The king doesn't just give the man a reprieve and say, well, you know, we can work something out. And that way he could have recouped at least some of his losses by making this man work for him for the rest of his life, you know. No, the king, he's the king, and in this imaginary story, he's the the absolute ruler and authority, and he can do what he wants in manners like this. So he stamps the invoice, paid in full, and he tells the guy to go back home to his wife and kids. Now note the reason the king did this. It says he took pity on him. But that really doesn't do justice to the story. The word used in verse 27 and translated as take pity is the strongest word in the Greek language for compassion. In the noun form of it, it refers to what we uh, were called the inward parts of the body, uh, the viscera, the, you know, the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, the intestines, all that stuff that we need that we're glad we're, is there in theory, but we're glad it's on the inside, not the out, that there's skin and muscle covering it because nobody wants to see that, you know. 
And back then, people believed that the seat of your emotions was not, not in your heart, as we often say, even though that's not really where our emotions are felt, but in your, your inward parts, your, your guts. And we, we might allude to this idea when we say something like, well, my brain's telling me one thing, but my gut's telling me something different. So what Jesus is saying here is that the king went with his gut and he, and he pardoned this guy. And we might say he followed his heart, not his, not his mind or his, uh, or his, or his uh, ledger. And of course, we already know the picture Jesus is painting here. God is the king, and we all owe the incalculable debt of sin to him, and we have no hope of ever repaying that. And if you ever get a chance to talk to someone who was at one time in a very dark place, but who came to know God and experience God's forgiveness, you will likely get this Id- an idea of what this man in Jesus' story was experiencing emotionally thinking. To think that there's no hope that this is the end and to get a reprieve from that, just have it wiped away. The guy, was, his relief was, was amazing. But as important as that truth is to understanding the point of Jesus' story, it's not the main point of the parable. The story goes on to say that this man just forgiven this unimaginable debt, immediately goes out and finds someone who owes him a hundred denarii, which was uh, wages for 100 days of manual labor. I did the math. I double-checked it. Uh, at, the, at minimum wage, uh, the, the Internet said the minimum wage in Oregon is $8.95 an hour right now. Is everybody... Uh, yeah, yeah. Who, who works for $8.95 an hour here? But anyway, minimum wage is $8.95 an hour in Oregon. Uh, but times uh, 12 hours a day because they work 12-hour shifts. And for 100 days, that's $10,740 gross before taxes. Or is that net? See, I let Pam do the math and everything like that. So it's, a, it's a $10,740 before taxes, gross. So this guy owes him a comparatively small amount of money, yet he presses him for it. When, when, the, when the man does the same thing that this guy had done just before the king, had just done before the king, this guy has no mercy on him, but instead he reports him to the authorities and they have him thrown in debtor's prison and he's going to stay until somehow the debt is paid uh, back to the civil servant and he gets his $10,700 in change. And the story goes on. The king's other civil servants, they find out how callous and unfeeling this guy has been and they go and they tell on him to the king. And they tell him what that guy had done. And the king sends for him and says, you know, you, you good for nothing, poor excuse for a human being. I canceled your debt when you begged me to. So, so didn't it cross your mind to, to give the same break to the guy who owed you money uh, who, who would be, that that would be the right thing to do? And he says, well, I'm not going to waste my mercy on you. You are headed for prison. And not some minimum security white-collar prison even. You're either. You're going to the big house. It's going to be rough on you. And at this stage of the story, Jesus' point was almost impossible to miss. Yet he still makes it very clear. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Now this story, like so many stories that Jesus told, it gets downright uncomfortable when you start thinking about it. At least for me it does. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's ever had trouble forgiving. To make it worse, the whole subject goes way beyond the, the simple math of, you know, like, well, hey, I'm upset with you. You did X to me. Oh, I did? I, I'm sorry I didn't realize I was doing it or I was being insensitive or I was upset that day, obviously. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I apologize. I'm sorry. Can you please forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. That's how it works 
when, when it's all working like it should, right? It's not that we're not going to upset each other, be angry with each other. It's that we're going to be able to forgive each other and, and apologize to each other. And that is great when it works like that, but real life is, is rarely so cut and dry. Instead, it's often more like, you know, that guy, he just, he just really rubs me the wrong way. He ticks me off. He slighted me. He's cheated me. He's mocked me. He's lied about me behind my back. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be watching him, and he better watch his step. If he undercuts me at work again, then, then, then it's on. See, sometimes we refuse to forgive because we feel we're protecting ourselves or our family. And what's almost worse is when it's, it's no big deal. It's no big offense. When the reason that you're holding this low-level grudge is, is hard to even really put a finger on. You cannot point to some big thing that some specific person did to you that you, uh, and you just still don't trust him. You don't like him. You're holding this grudge against him. It's almost something you forget about most of the time. Then you see him and go, oh, that's right. I don't like that guy. And then it's like you're refusing to forgive for reasons that are not even remotely important. Well, if such and so is going to be there, I'm not coming. I'm not going. Well, why not? Well, I don't know. I just don't like him. Well, have they done something to hurt you? Well, I'm not sure, but I think maybe one time they slighted me. But I'm going to assume that they did it on purpose. So it's really hard to say for sure, but I'm going to, I don't like him. So you're going to hold a grudge against them even though you cannot nail down what it is specifically they did to offend you. Yeah, that's pretty much it. You see, in the end, I I think a lot of us are like that poor woman who was upset with Nellie Olson, a fictional character for over three decades. Things I refuse to forgive and forget are pretty inconsequential if I'm being totally honest with you. And Jesus says, that's enough of that garbage. Just forgive. Forgive and be done with it. Now, of course, we should not think of this story's main lesson as simply, you know, you've actually got, absolutely got to forgive people or God will simply not forgive you. If that's what a person takes away from this, it can lead to all sorts of difficulties. I can see someone, you know, uh, a, a, a real worrier cataloging all the times in life when they were wronged and being worried about making sure they forgave every instance. Let's see, did I forgive Kent Flynn, who was a real bully of mine in, uh, grade, in middle school or in fifth grade or so? Did I forgive him every time he teased me when we were in fifth grade? I must have. We got along pretty well at our last high school reunion, you know. If we say God won't forgive us if we don't forgive, and aren't we saying that God can forgive anything except not forgiving? It gets to be like a, a time travel plot on a science fiction show. It's unnecessarily complicated. The idea that Jesus is getting across here is that being forgiven by God should change us. Where we were petty and small-minded, we should be willing to overlook little things that people do to offend us and hurt us, realizing that they probably don't even know what they're doing much of the time. Where we wanted to get a little payback, we should become people who realize the futility and the misery of living in a perpetual state of victimhood. Oh, poor me. I don't like that guy. He's got it out for me. It's better to forgive and to move on than to be the person who's always sniffing at minor injustices that they've endured or imagined so much of the time. And where we were hard and overly concerned about absolute fairness, we should eventually become people who give some grace and realize that in the grand scheme of things, when all is said and done at the end of the day and other cliches like that, so much of what upsets us just is not worth it. To the person who calls him or herself a follower of Jesus, but who cuts no one else any slack, I would ask if they really understand just what they have been given by God in Jesus Christ. 
If God's grace hasn't at least begun to transform you, I say, well, I'm not there yet. Well, that's fine. If it hasn't at least begun to transform you, if you're not headed that direction because it is a, a growing process, then you're not doing it right. You're not getting it. If you have accepted God's forgiveness, are you letting that gift change you? Or are you still just as hard and unforgiving as you were before you met Jesus? If so, if that's you, then you need to change your heart. You need to let God soften your heart because it's a matter of life and death. That's what Jesus was saying here. And if you have never responded to God's offer of forgiveness and, and been baptized, and I would say, what is, what is holding you back there? Is it, is it knowledge? You're just not sure? I get very few responses to my regular offers to crack open a Bible with someone and puzzle it out. Are, are you scared? Maybe a little bit? Well, generally, we don't like change, but this is, a, this is a good change. I'm not perfect by any means, but I am so much more happy and fulfilled than I was 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. And you know what? I was thinking about it. I would hate to have grown into middle age as someone who didn't know Jesus Christ. I wouldn't want to be friends with that guy. Maybe you just need to be personally buttonholed. Maybe you just need to be challenged one-on-one -on -one to make that commitment to accept forgiveness and begin the process of forgiving. You know, I just, I, I, I don't know of any specific cases, but I'm just certain that so many of us here are just holding on to little things. We're letting, letting these things ruin us. Maybe you don't even realize it. Maybe they're souring your disposition, but you know, it's like a, a fish doesn't know it's wet because that's its, that's its, uh, that's its environment. It doesn't know that it's, uh, that it's different from us. We're the weird ones to the fish. Maybe you're living in such a, a haze and a cloud of, of yellow, uh, smoldering bitterness and anger and unforgiveness that that's just your natural environment. Well, things can be better. You can come out of that. You can change. But you have to take that step. You, you, God will change you, but you have to let him. You have to say, I want to be changed. So I would challenge you to do what you know you need to do in response to Jesus' teaching here. Maybe you need to come up and talk to me after we're done here and you say, I got to do something about this. I, I really do need to get baptized. I need to be forgiven and to start forgiving. Maybe you need to recommit. You need, maybe you just need someone to pray for you and to meet regularly with someone. Maybe you just need to let someone else know what you're going through so they can pester you about it, also known as an accountability partner and be praying for you and with you. But if you're holding on to, to bitterness and anger, I would just say, let it go. And sometimes letting it go starts with this desire and a realization that I haven't let it go. I do have this problem. I need to let it go. God, please help me let it go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that no matter how rotten we are, that there's always another chance for us. We thank you for the realization that dawns on us, not just once, but over and over again through our lives, that even though we have messed up and screwed up and sinned and, and done things we, we could not do, we should not do, we know we shouldn't do, we didn't want to do, but we still did, that you 
the realization that you are there, you will take us back and you will forgive us. 77 times, 490 times, 49,000 times, it doesn't matter. You have our backs in this, Father. Help us to realize that and help us to let that knowledge and your power and that realization change us to be people who are like you and that we are forgiving and full of grace and love. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.